If you are a parent, you know that raising children can have its challenges. Being a parent is fun. It's rewarding. It's an amazing stage of life. There is perhaps nothing as exciting as watching your kids grow up, interacting with your kids, teaching them, taking pride in their achievements. At the same time, let's be honest, parenting is hard. Kids don't come with an instruction manual, and some of us parents may feel like we're winging it. Welcome to the Yeshiva World Podcast, where each week you can hear experts and community leaders discuss the issues you really care about. My name is Yaakov M. Remember to check out my 24-hour news hotline by calling 848-261-NEWS, 848-261-6397. Dr. Saryaris Lovitz is a renowned parenting expert. She's written amazing books and has created a parenting system designed to help you raise happy children, successful children, and fill your children with Yiras Shemayim. Her system helps parents maintain a healthy relationship relationship with their child for the long term. In this powerful interview, we discuss common issues like getting kids to listen to your instructions, sibling rivalry, teaching kids patience, how to respond when your kids complain, and much more. In addition, she provides a fresh and unique perspective and some really fundamental ideas which seem to make so much sense yet go way beyond the conventional wisdom. And let me mention, you can sign up for Dr. Yaroslovitz's daily emails at her website, handsfullchinuch.com, and you can follow her on Instagram at Hands Full Chinuch. Here now is my exclusive interview with Dr. Sari Yaris Lovitz on the Yeshiva World Podcast. Dr. Yaris Lovitz is a parenting expert with an occupational therapy practice in Brooklyn and Muncie. Her book is entitled Are Your Hands Full? The website is handsfullchinuch.com. Dr. Yaris Lovitz has a revolutionary parenting system to help parents with behavior management, cognitive development of their children. Dr. Yaris Lovitz, thank you for being here. You're welcome. And let me just be very direct. My hands are full. And as a parent, parenting is hard. Like, like on a scale of one to 10, um, solving world, world hunger, let's call it a nine. And parenting is like a 13. And I'll just say to me, the hardest part of parenting is that they don't really come with an instruction booklet. Like I, I feel like I'm often winging it with no strategy. I suspect I'm not the only one. So before we get to the specifics of your parenting system, is that a common issue, what I'm describing for other parents that you speak with, and do your books and does your training address this? Sure, sure. This is, not only is this the hardest thing you'll ever do, it's probably the most important thing you'll ever do. It's the most important investment you'll ever make on this planet. And a huge responsibility, I'll just add, obviously. It's a huge responsibility and it's a huge investment and it bears huge dividends. And it's funny, if I told you that I had the, um, the recipe for strategies of how to make a massive $5 billion investment, you'd run, right? You'd run, you'd follow every step of the way, you'd listen so yes. carefully, you wouldn't ask a single question, you would do exactly what I asked, right? You wouldn't say to me, oh, it's too hard, it's too noisy, it's too messy, I can't do it, <laughs> you wouldn't even, right? So the idea is, is that think of this as a huge, huge multi-billion dollar investment because it is going to yield you revenues that are way, way, way past the value of money or anything else I can think of. It takes it's approximately seven. Yeah. It takes approximately 7,000 days to do the job from the hospital nursery approximately to the chuppah. So it's a 7,000 day investment. Um, 7,000 sounds like a little, sounds like a lot. What do you think? So it sounds like a lot, except that we're spending that 7,000 day period raising the kids anyway. So we might as well, let's say what you're describing takes slightly more effort or focus. I don't even know if that's true. It, it certainly seems very reasonable. Right. Because it really is. It's really not, you know, if, 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 if you're going to be on this planet 120 years and all your kids are going to be on this planet 120 years, you're really only getting a sixth of that time with them. 
There you go. The rest of the time out there <laughs> perpetuating what perpetuating And you're sleeping you a bunch talk. of those hours. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you might be doing that. You might be doing that. But yes, to answer your question, the biggest the biggest difficulty is not knowing what to do. The worst part of the whole thing is when you don't know what to do. Because when parents don't know what to do, they panic. And when they panic, the kid smells it. Kids, kid smells it. And children need safety and security. And the minute they sense that the people who are taking care of them don't know what to do, they feel unsafe. And that's what starts a lot of the trouble. My oldest so, is 20. I'm sorry, I'm just going to interrupt. And I, I don't know if I've ever thought of it that way. I know that kids literally sense everything. They're so sharp. You cannot get anything past them. But it never occurred to me kind of the insecurity that you're describing where they sense that, wait a second, he's, he's winking it. He doesn't know what he's doing. And that actually will give them sort of a sense of insecurity. That's fascinating. Think about it this way. In other words, if the person who's supposed to be taking care of you doesn't know what they're doing, well, what does that say for you? You're in trouble. You're in trouble. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that's where, that's where this is all about, giving kids the, the sense of, of, of safety and security. By the way, just so you know, safety and security is the number one emotion we're born with. In other words, if you take a look at a newborn baby, a newborn baby doesn't care who feeds it, who diapers it, who looks at it, who doesn't look at it, doesn't care. But if you take that baby to a bris or undress that baby and stick it in a bathtub, oh, oh you're going to hear about it. <laughs> um, you remember exactly where you were by 9-11. Those of us who are old enough remember exactly where we were when Kennedy was assassinated. Yeah. The minute our safety gets rattled, we, that, that, that talks to our deepest need. After that comes a need for love, a need for emotion, a need for attachment, a need for a million other things. But the need for safety is first and primary, both chronologically and in importance. So when a kid feels unsafe, they're going to act out. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I want to get specific with you. Let me just follow up on that. Is there a specific way to get children to feel safe or is it to listen to your advice and the things we're going to discuss now? And as we build confidence and as we build like kind of a strategy, then they're going to feel more safe. Right. So the, the way to get kids to feel safe is by being consistent. When things happen with basic routine and, you know, night is always night, day is always day, you know, life works with some sort of a rhyme or reason. And they know what to expect. They, they know what to expect and they feel safer on the, on the overall. Of course, there are exceptions to every rule. By the way, this program is designed for what, we, what I always call the NN, the neglected normal. Uh, I feel that we don't spend enough time helping the normally developing population. When I mean normally developing population, I mean the basic normal family, basic normal kids who are going through our general ed system day after week after month. And, you know, we're very busy, Baruch Hashem, with the, you know, the special needs and all, of all different types and sizes and shapes, and we should be. But what happens to the regular guys? And this program is designed just for regular um, there are times when people need to tweak programs and I'll do that for them, but that's always on an individual basis. So the basically the neglected normal kid still needs a parent who knows what they're doing, especially in 2020. Yeah, so absolutely. Consistency. Yes. Parents have a much higher propensity to be consistent if they know what they're doing. 
If so, they don't know what they're doing, they're going to try something on Monday, something else on Tuesday, a third thing on Wednesday. By Thursday, the kids' eyeballs are twirling all over the place. <laughs> right. That's my disorder is that I'll, it's great to be consistent, except you know, I'll decide, all right, this is going to work, and then I'll try it for a day or two. And, well, okay, that didn't work. You know, My wife will try the chart, and the chart didn't quite pay off as well as we expected. So then next week, we forget about the chart. And I, I think for a lot of us, that's the pitfall of consistency. So does that make sense? Yeah, let me ask you the definition of the word works before you, you use the word works about three times in the last two seconds. What, what, wh- how would you define the word works? So yeah, <laughs> I like to be asking the questions, not answering them. I, I, my gut instinct, and I, I have a feeling I'm falling into a trap, is if my child exactly right. is, is exhibiting, uh, I'm very sharp. You know, if, if my child is exhibiting a certain behavior that I don't like and a behavior that you and I discussed before, we started recording was uh, uh, if children are fighting with each other, tearing each other's heads off, right? So uh, to me, I'll want to, uh, I guess, prevent that from happening. And that's my, at least my immediate goal is to prevent them from fighting. So that's how I'm defining works is I get whatever my strategy is, I get them to stop fighting at that moment. Excellent, excellent. A plus for you. (laughs) In other words, you fell right into my trap. Exactly what I want. You're saying that works means you get your immediate goal, right? Is that what you're saying? (laughs) That's what I'm saying. All right. So now let me give you my definition of works. Can we do that? Yes. Okay. My definition of works has three prongs to it. Prong A is that you should raise your child to be Shaimataram Mitzvah. B is, is that you should raise your child to be socially and emotionally healthy and stable. And C is that you should raise your child who will still go to the chuppah and be talking to you. (laughs) <laughs> those sound great good goals those are great goals it's not it doesn't include whether or not your kid eats a chicken cutlet on a Wednesday night it does not include whether or not your kids tear each other's heads off because really that's what they're supposed to do that's the way their bone shalom made the world we'll talk about that in a minute so really you've got to stay focused are my kids in, in the normal range in terms of Yiddishkeit in terms of emotional and social stability and do I have a good relationship with them other than that Nothing much else matters. Yeah, no, that's, so, that's phenomenal. Yeah, continue. So my goal is to keep kids, keep parents on strategy for long stretches of time, not assessing every other day if something is working. Because bottom line is, it takes minimum 40 days to get anything, any change going. So behaviors don't get eradicated in three seconds. It takes work. It takes time. It takes commitment. It takes consistency. Okay, so let's delve into that, and I'll sort of let you guide things, but are you suggesting, this is what it sort of sounds like, that we should accept these behaviors? Are you saying when behaviors are happening, and, and let's just talk about three specific areas that you had mentioned when we spoke earlier that many parents of adolescents struggle with, most of us can relate to, uh, kids ignoring parents when their parents ask them to do something, kids, as we said earlier, tearing each other's heads off, kids complaining and whining and thinking that they have it tougher than anybody else. And that could be very, you know, kids complaining about dinner every other night or every night. And and so parents of teenagers, I think I I could certainly relate to these. Are are you saying that we should accept these behaviors? Are you saying we have to focus on the long term? What exactly are you saying? Okay. What am I saying is as follows. If a behavior is normal, according to pediatric development or adolescent development, yes, you have to accept it. It's part of the job. In other words, you applied for the job, you got accepted, you have to be willing to accept every aspect of the job. So for example, I'm going out of the three examples you gave, 
sibling rivalry is normal. Fighting between siblings is 1,000% normal. And if you want, we can delve into that in a minute. Not obeying parents? No, that's not normal. That's not something that should be accepted. Whining and complaining? Half-half, depending on what. So really the barometer that I get parents to assess once they get knowledgeable through learning about pediatric development is the first thing you have to know is you have to know your customer. You have to know what's normal for a six-year-old. You have to know what's normal for a nine-year-old. You have to know what's normal for a 12-year-old. If you don't know what's normal, then how do you know what to accept? Makes a lot of sense. To ask me to fix something that's normal? Uh-uh, I ain't doing that. <laughs> you go out and make your next kiddish because you have a normal kid. Don't it's like me. Don't get fix it. It's like Lahav deal. You know, when when I hear a clanging under my hood of my car and I take it to the mechanic and the mechanic says, "Your car is ten years old. This is normal. Just as long as it drives, just be happy." You know that that that's kind of like what. And I go away with a sigh of relief. You know, like I he saved me five hundred dollars. Exactly. Now, it may not be so comfortable for you to have the clanging in your engine, but if you know it's normal, you should be right. willing to accept it, which right. leads me into parent tolerating discomfort. You want to go into that? Because I want to go, yeah. Is, and I want to get back to, you know, to how we know what's normal and what's not, you know, other than, because we don't always get to speak to Dr. Yaris Lovitz every day, although maybe some people do. But, uh, so I want to get back to that. But yeah, start with, you know, what you were just going to. Okay, basically, I was talking about tolerating discomfort. Yeah. I was leading up to that. Okay, so we're living Perfect. in a world where comfort has become the soup of the day. In other words, we, we need to be comfortable. We measure good and bad based on what's comfortable and what isn't. I'm stopping for effect here. Yeah. I want <laughs> and I'm going to absorb this concept. And thankfully, Baruch Hashem, with a tremendous amount of chasadim that has been thrown upon us, even though, even though cholesterol struggles with many, many, many issues and concerns, one of the things we're mostly not is uncomfortable. So, for example, just to give you an example, like a kid of 100 years ago, you know, every morning he woke up, he milked the cow, he collected the eggs, he walked three miles to school in the heat, the snow, the sleep, the hail, no matter what. Today, if the air conditioner is broken in school, we close school. <laughs> so that's we've arrived in 100 years, approximately. You know, and so what happens and, and, and I'll just add, you know, in, when I was a child, you had to take a tape cassette and stick it into a device if you wanted music. Now, if you have to press a screen, that's too much effort. That's too much effort. So we've come to a point where we're extremely comfortable. And because of that, our tolerance of discomfort has gone way, 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 way down. Now, I'm going to tell you one thing. The root, the foundation, the most important skill that leads to happiness, or health, emotional health, or any type of um, accomplishment in this world is the ability to tolerate when things don't go the way you want. Let me give you an example. Imagine you're going to be on this planet, so am I, Bez Hashem, 120 years. Imagine mathematically 50% of the time things go the way you want, 50% of the time they don't. Let's just say. Now, if, you're the, if you can only be okay when things go the way you want, then you'll only be happy half your life, which is a terrible shame. But if you can be okay even when things don't go the way you want, then you could be happy your whole life. So really when you think about it, I always joke, they're, they're waiting, they're searching for thousands of years for the root and the key for happiness. You know what the key to happiness is? The skill of knowing how to be unhappy. <laughs> wow. Because if you know how to tolerate when it's 120 degrees outside and you're in the amusement park with, you know, seven kids under the age of eight, and this one's thirsty, and this one needs the bathroom, and this one's ice cream fell on the floor, and this one's this, <laughs> and this one's that, and you're losing your mind, you think you're losing your mind, 
if you can work on your tolerance of all of that, then you can actually enjoy it. Sounds lofty, right? But it's not that hard. It's if the focus is such that that people say, one minute, this is not a clean, quiet, comfortable profession. You want clean and quiet and comfortable? Go into computers. They don't make messes. If you chose parenting as, 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 as an occupation, then you've got to be able to deal with the discomfort that comes along with it. And really, the Rabbanu Shalom inaugurates us right away. He takes away our nights. The first, the first thing, before you know it, you, you, you wait to become a parent, and then you become sleep deprived. So, it's, you know, and it's, it's the way the Rabbanu Shalom says, that's it, guy, for the next 7,000 days, you ain't going to be comfortable. And, and, and people who have expectations that they should be comfortable in the process, then you've got kids raising kids. That's great. That is phenomenal. Really, a whole fascinating new perspective. It's frightening. It's frightening. It's terribly <laughs> frightening. Because let me ask you something. If the whole purpose of having children is to pass down Messiah from generation to generation to generation, and we want our kids to be adult enough to be able to do that, with what tools? If, if we're constantly making them comfortable... You know, a kid wants a red lollipop and he got a blue lollipop and he's crying about it. And you say, what the heck, give him the red lollipop. And bottom line is, is you're not willing to make him uncomfortable even in 2020 definitions of discomfort. Then with what tools is he going to be able to tolerate being uncomfortable when it becomes his turn to pass down the Syrah? And this gets very tricky because you're describing, you know, that maybe our instinct is uh, to make our children comfortable and resolve their discomfort. And number one, I want to do that because I don't want my discomfort of the kids screaming. And number two, I kind of feel almost like my conscientious part of me tells me, listen, you got to give the kids what they need to be happy or whatever. And, and you're describing a whole new level, which is you actually have an obligation to train this child to, 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 to experience discomfort and to kind of cope with it and, and to live with it. So how do you know and when to, yeah. having what you want doesn't create happiness. Right. Making the best with what you have creates happiness. We do have a Chazal that tells us that. Right, so, and, right, right. Good, good point. Right. You know, the, right. So, so here's the point. Happiness doesn't come from getting what you want. Happiness comes from being happy with what you have. Yeah. And, and, and is that as a child actually being trained that way? If at six years old, at seven years old, eight year old, they make certain demands, they cry, they complain, and then you don't give them what they want. I'm not saying every time, but you know, when it's appropriate to not give them, to restrict them, they will, will they pick up that lesson? Right. So what I teach my parents to do is wait for the Rabban Shalom to send opportunities of discomfort. In other words, he's, he's chosen to create a very comfortable generation. Good. I respect that. But he will send moments where your kid will get the black and white cookie instead of the chocolate chip cookie. He will set that up. Watch him. He does it. Wow. Then comes, do you, so I teach my parents to recognize it, recognize the moment, grab it, embrace it. It's your chance. And don't you wish your kids should learn on a lollipop or a cookie? Isn't that the best way to learn? Yes. For Shalom, they shouldn't learn on anything worse. So say amen. So that, you know, so that's, that's, that's the idea. The idea is to be able to not be frightened the minute they don't get something that they want and they lose it and they tantrum and they get hysterical, not to become unraveled yourself to say, Ooh, this is good. This is a wonderful opportunity. And then be, be okay with it. That okayness in you will be smelled by the child. 
Now, sibling rivalry, normal, not obeying parents, not normal, complaining about dinner, half normal, half abnormal. How do we arrive at this? How do we gauge it? Obviously, life has full, is full of scenarios that pop up that are not as clear-cut, not as expected. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah, sure. So basically, thank you for bringing the conversation back to where it was. Um, <laughs> basically, I have a program. It's a, it's a two-part series, ages 0 to 10 is volume, Are Your Hands Full, Volume 1. Ages 10 to 18 are, are Your Hands Full, Volume 2. It's book and CD form. And in that program is a ton, ton, ton of education of what normal is supposed to look like. In all of the many scenarios that I could think of, we even created a fictitious family in there, if you read through the book, and tons and tons and tons of scenarios to the point where people say to me, oh, sorry, you live in my house. Yep, I do. Because children generally follow, children generally follow a pattern of development the same way they kind of walk around the same time, they kind of write around the same time, they learn how to ride a bike around the same time. So emotional development follows a clock as well. So it's pretty safe to say that most of the basics, most of the typical behaviors you're going to see in children is teachable to the typical parent body. You should know that this is normal. You should know that this is not normal. I'm a real stickler for obedience. The last time I checked Parshas Yisro, Parakhaf, Pasagid Beis, it's still in the book. It's still there. <laughs> they haven't torn it out yet. Sometimes I wonder. So it's still there. Kabbalah Mecha is still there, and it ain't going anywhere. So I'm, 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 I'm a big stickler for the obedience. Um, obedience is actually phase two of the program. The program is divided into three different phases. Um, frustration tolerance is the first. I just told you about that. And then after that, on top of that comes obedience. In other words, you can't obey someone unless you're willing to step out of your comfort zone. So you can't teach obedience until your child has experienced that healthy discomfort I was referring to. Think of it this way. If my mother tells me to take a shower and I don't want to take a shower, and I'm not used to doing what I don't want to do. I ain't taking no shower. So that's going to trump the obedience aspect. It's what? the only thing that I'm going to get, I'm going to be more specific than that. It's the only thing that can trump obedience. Interesting. Now, what does the world do? The world sets things up that you should want to clean the playroom. Whoever cleans the playroom gets ice cream. That's not obedience. That's just manipulating the environment so that uh -huh. the child can do the same thing you want. Right. That's not obedience. Skipping that valuable step. Remember, you only get 7,000 days. <laughs> wow. So now let's – okay, this is really fascinating. So let's get to, back to your program because uh, you're, you're describing, I guess, with three steps. So the first stage is the discomfort. Three phases. Three phases. Three phases. So the second the step is, stage is, phase is obedience. And then – What's the third and then phase? Once you've created an obeyer by nature, then comes something called impulse control. Then comes something that, in other words, if a child is obeyer by nature, the chances of them crossing the red line, of course, you have to always keep a tehillim in the other hand, but the chances <laughs> of them crossing the red line um, are far less. So that, that, if, you, if people come crying to me, you know, my kid did X or Y or Z, and they know they're not allowed to, then you have to first go back to the beginning. How well does your child handle on a Matzah Shabbos when they say they want sushi and you say, not tonight? Do they fall apart? Do they whine and whine and whine until you give in? Well, if that's what's going on, then how do you expect your child to control his impulses? Right. You can't put the car before the horse. You have to build. It's like building a house. You have first floor, second floor, third floor. Now, each floor takes a while. 
tremendous amount of commitment and patience. Generally speaking, when I start parents on program, it's six weeks, or in the book, in the book of the CDs, it's six weeks per phase. Six times three is 18. It's about 18 weeks, a lot less than 7,000 days. Yeah, no, and that's very reasonable. Uh, very now- reasonable, but it's commitment. It's commitment. It's, it's, you know, it's cute. I, I give classes, you know, to mothers, and usually it's a six-part series. Usually, invariably, by the beginning of lesson number three, somebody's going to raise their hand and say to me, you know, this doesn't have very much to do about, with the kids. This is all about me. Duh. Yep. That's <laughs> it. it. You know, bottom line is, is that the kids are kids. Kids are kids. They're supposed to be kids. Hashem created them as kids. They basically follow a developmental pattern. This has very little to do with them. They're supposed to be doing this. Now, could you... We, as parents, have to be able to invest from our own comfort level and follow some basic formula and be able and, and watch the change. Now, can you walk us through just to get a bit of a practical hands-on picture? Let's say you describe six weeks for a phase. So how would that work, you know, right here and now, if I just wanted to begin my six weeks, if you could walk me through how that would transpire. Okay. So, so let's say you want, how, how, how do you think you would teach a child um, if, if phase one, let's just say phase one is frustration tolerance, right? So how, do you, how would you teach a child to tolerate frustration? Right. So here I'm on the spot again. I, I guess what first occurs to me is in that scenario where my child is frustrated, where my child is demanding something that I feel is unreasonable, I suppose I would patiently, hopefully patiently withhold it from them and they would cry or depending on the age, you know, they would tantrum and I would maybe point out to the child, listen, I know that uh, this is frustrating. I know that this is not fun. Uh, it's not fun for me, but uh, I really believe that we have to learn how to be happy even in these circumstances or something along those lines. Now you tell me the real okay. answer. <laughs> A plus again for falling in the track. Here we go. <laughs> so basically it works like this. You, you know, your child asks you for something. You have to make a mental calculation in your mind. Am I giving this? Am I not? You have a right to do either one and you, nobody holds you to you, you're the adult and you make the decision. Let's say this time you decide, no, remember, under the age of 10 for sure, no is absolutely no, you can never change your mind. Why? Because if you change your mind, your child will misinterpret your changing the mind as if you don't know what you're doing. They don't, they're not old enough to get the gray area that there's a possibility of being flexible in a relationship. That's taught during the teen years. Wow. Now, so you don't change your mind. You don't change your mind. There's a time and a place for everything in pediatric development. You should just know that. Um, so you don't change your mind and the child starts tantruming. So, so this is where you, you got a little lost. During tantrums, we don't. <laughs> I got a little During lost tantrums. years ago. <laughs> <laughs> During tantrums, we never talk. There's no conversation. And the reason for that is, is because conversation is feedback and feedback encourages a behavior. You're just making it worse. I'll give you an example. Let me ask you something. Yaakov, you want a million dollars? I wouldn't mind. Okay, good. So listen to me. Tonight, <laughs> in Carnegie Hall... There's a last-minute empty slot uh, for a solo violinist. <laughs> if you can fill that slot for an hour, a million dollars, it's yours. <laughs> You're going to say to me? I'm not able to do that. I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't play violin. And I'm going to say to you, come on, a million dollars. You don't play violin? That's not an excuse. What do you mean you don't play violin, right? So I'm going to somehow talk you into it. And you're going to arrive there in Carnegie Hall and you're going to get up on stage and they're going to hand you a violin 
and you have no idea what to do with it and you're going to start squawking away. And because, because patrons of Carnegie Hall are usually very polite, they're going to slowly, slowly, systematically pick themselves up and file out. Okay, so after 10, 15 minutes, Carnegie Hall is empty. What's the first thing you're going to do under those circumstances? Once they start to file out? Once they're out. Yeah, I'll learn to play the violin. Mm, no. Wishful thinking. <laughs> the first thing you're going to do, you're going to stop playing. Oh, sure. Okay. Why? You because lost your audience. The audience, right. A hundred percent. Okay. What's, what am I referring to now? Let's see. A the violin the, is tantrum. Yeah. The, the tantrum is the, words, yeah. Kids will tantrum only as long as they have an audience. If you keep talking to them while this tantrum is going on. Got it. So you're right. you right. The, then, then you're their audience, right? You walk out and they lose their audience or you mentally walk out. Right. I teach my parents not to walk out physically. Right. right. Mentally. Understood. You don't walk out right. physically. You check out. Right. Right. Okay. That's an excellent analogy. Check out. And then That's they're, cool. they're tantruming at no one. And what ends up happening is, is that they self-calm, which is a super important skill. They calm themselves down and they learn to deal with something not going the way I want it to go. Which is, again, this is, you ask the question, how do you teach that? That's how you teach it. You set up the right environment. It's amazing. Now, before I let you go, uh, sibling rivalry, you mentioned earlier that that's normal. And I know my wife would say to me, yeah, look, maybe I can tolerate the sibling rivalry, but they're fighting. They're hurting each other. Or one of the children is coming and saying, how can you do this? How can you let this other child abuse me or something along those lines? So just from a mm -hmm. practical standpoint, how do you tolerate that? Okay, so first of all, I, I, the caveat that I say about this program over and over and over again is it's got to be safe. Okay. Most sibling <laughs> first rivalry do no is harm. not unsafe. Okay. Right, first do no harm. It, it, most sibling rivalry is not unsafe. You know why? Because there's a thermostat. Siblings have a love-hate relationship. So deep down, very deep down in some cases, <laughs> deep down on Monday, not so deep down on Tuesday, very deep down on Wednesday, they do love each other. And because of that, because of that, all the terrible negative midos you see amongst siblings doesn't apply to the, if you see terrible midos amongst kids and friends or cousins or anybody else. In other words, the rule is, is what's okay for siblings is not okay outside siblings. Why? Because siblings are vying for your love and devotion. They are, they are competing. They're fighting over you. They're not fighting over the red fire truck. They're not fighting over the seat by the Shabbos table. They're not fighting over the shower. They're not fighting over the blouse or the pair of whatever. They're fighting over you. In fact, when parents come in and say, my kids are killing me, I say, well, something's going right in your home. It means that the love that you're dishing out is worth fighting over. And that's a huge compliment to parents. When kids fight, it tells me that something's healthy in the house. When do kids not fight? I've heard this. When the parents themselves fight, the kids stick together. When there's, when there's crisis, all types of crisis, God forbid it. In other words, when there's illness in the home, when there's uh, strife in the home, when there's war, when there's extreme poverty, when there's crisis, kids will parent each other. They will take care of each other. It's heartbreaking when you see it. Right. It's absolutely heartbreaking when you see pictures of it. War pictures, crisis pictures, Leviah pictures, Shiva pictures. Right. I've seen it and I recognize it every time. Right. And, the, so and the, flip, the flip side is it's a relief to parents to hear that, yeah, 
kids who are fighting actually could be a good sign. It's, it's more than a good sign. It's necessary. Let me tell you why. It's the Rabbana Shalom's marriage preparation course. Wow. This is where they learn to share, to fagin, to coexist, to tolerate. They, this ne- is where they learn. I've never heard that. And is there any sort of secular research or anything that, let's say, only children would not be yes, successful as yes, mar- in yes, a marriage? Absolutely, <laughs> yes. You quick on the draw, Yaakov. Absolutely. There is secular research showing that only children struggle in relationships. Wow. And that's why you I run a support group for parents of only children to teach them how to turn cousins into siblings and how to turn friends into siblings. This is why we take only children and send them to camp very young because we want them to have that experience. Uh, it, it, it's, it's so healthy. Where exactly do you want your children to learn social skills? On the street? In the principal's office? Where do you want them to yeah, learn it? Right, absolutely. From the home, from the, fam- from the immediate family of your own home that's the safe place for them to learn now it's noisy it's disruptive <laughs> this is not about you this right. is not about your comfort so there, we're back to that again now it's <laughs> not to say that in the program i don't give strategies of how to cope but i give strat when people say to me take care of it for me get rid of it i'll say i will not get rid of something that their bunchlum created i'm not wow. big enough to do that i'm not powerful enough to do that and i don't want to do it it's part of their development. It's part of what, make, what will make them healthy. And you want to hear something scary? After marriage, most of the time, sibling rivalry takes a temporary break. And married siblings usually do very, very, very well with each other. Why? Yeah. Because they each have a spouse, and they're not fighting over mommy and daddy's love anymore. Right. Oh. It's only much later on in life, over Yerusha, over caring of aging parents, the minute there's mommy and Tati in the picture, that's when it's there. It's all about you. It has wow. nothing to do with Wow. Okay, this is, I'm fascinating. I could literally hear this stuff for hours. I mean, this is really, I've never heard a lot of what you're saying, you know, and I'm, I, I have heard from certain parenting experts. And, uh, yeah, so let's get, yeah, let's get to that. So you've got the books, you've got the CDs. You also have a podcast, which can be found on your website. Uh, so parents who are Correct. hearing this, what's their next step? And they say, wow, I want more of this. This is great. Uh, should they buy your book? Should they reach out to you personally? Should they come see you? What, what's the next step? Whatever they feel they need. If a person feels they fall into what I call the neglected normal, then first of, first of all, get the book. If you're a reader, get the book itself. If you're a listener, get the audio book. We have the exact book in audio format. If you want to get clips of things, the podcast is great. The website is great. And then there are those who contact me through the website. And if they feel they need to talk and parents, you know, it's the best investment. Like I said, it's the best investment you'll ever make because it's the investment into your future. And they come and they talk to me and we, we were, I work the program. I do a lot of handholding. Some people need extra handholding to follow the program. The program is, it's very recipe style. It tells you, you know, what to do, what not to do. And then I work with what, what, where they found success, where they found that things needed to be tweaked, and that, that's when we tweak things. But the foundational concepts are uniform throughout. And I think I described some of them to you tonight, today, but, you know, that, that's basically what they learn. Okay. The website, handsfullchinuch.com. The book is Are Your Hands Full, which can be purchased uh, probably in any Judaica store or online. Correct. Uh, and uh, Dr. Sari Aris Lovitz, parenting expert, and much more. And we really appreciate you joining us here on the Yeshiva World Podcast. 
Thank you. You have a wonderful day.